But you can turn with me your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. So we continue our studies in Paul's letter to the Colossians. It is one of his prison epistles. We've looked at Philippians, we've looked at Ephesians, now Colossians, and just to round it all up, we'll probably do Philemon after, so we finish all the prison epistles. Um, so we're looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. I will begin reading at chapter 1, verse 24, to set the context. Striving for the local church. So uh, chapter 1, verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up uh, in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches, all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the uh, tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, we ask again that you send forth your spirit amongst your people. O Christ, who is our head, and we are the body that you send forth your spirit amongst your people, uh, that we would better understand what it is you have for us in these words. We know, O God, that we need the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the spirit of illumination, O God, to understand. We're thankful, O oh God, you give it. We're thankful, O oh God, you grant it. And we pray that you do so for us this day. Help us to see, O oh God, the way in which you bring in your kingdom. Help us to see, O oh God, the blessings of the knowledge of the mystery that you have revealed in Christ and you reveal in the hearts of sinners. Thank you, O oh God, that you do so according to your plan, according to your promises in time and space, as you take the benefits Christ has purchased and apply them by the power of the Spirit. And so we pray, O oh God, that that would be applied today to your people, that in our sanctification, in our perseverance, O oh God, you would preserve us, you would keep us, you would sanctify us, help us to better resemble our Christ, help us to live in a manner consistent with your word, and we know, O oh God, that this is founded upon what Christ has done. We also pray, O oh God, if there are any here today who do not know you, we pray, O oh God, that you'd show them their sin and show them their need for this blessed Savior. For in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And there is no greater treasure than knowing Christ Jesus and having everlasting life in him. So we ask, O oh God, you'd be with us now by your spirit, strengthen your saints, save sinners. And we pray in all things you'd be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, in Fox's book of Christian Martyrs, he spends a lot of time focusing in on the persecution under Bloody Mary, the, uh, Bloody Mary uh, that Roman Catholic queen who sought to take out uh, reformers, sought to take out those who uh, were against the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. And one such man that is mentioned in that account is the man by the name of Lawrence Saunders. And Lawrence Saunders was a pastor. He was making his way uh, on Saturday to London to feed his flock with the word of God on Sunday. And one of the Queen's counselors, Sir John Mordaunt, saw him, overtook him, and said to him, uh, what are you doing? Where are you going? And Lawrence Saunders says, I have a cure in London, and now I go to instruct my people according to my duty. Now, Sir John Mordaunt would be the one who imprisons Lawrence Saunders, and he says to him, do not do this very thing. And Saunders responds by saying, how shall I then be discharged before God? If any be, anybody be sick and desire consolation, if any want good counsel and need instruction, or if any should slip into error and receive false doctrine. Now, this is the same sentiment that the Apostle Paul has here for us in Colossians chapter 2. He's been given a task. He's been given a marching orders from his king, and he must do them. And he does so as he strives for the word of God. He strives to make sure that they do not slip into error, and he's willing to suffer for that very thing. He's willing to discharge his duty at the very thought of him being burned at the stake. And this is what Paul is doing for the church at Colossae here. Doctrine matters. Theology matters. Because when there is error, it can lead to strife, it can lead to discord, and it can lead to weak Christians having a lack of assurance in the promises of Christ. So Paul himself, even though he's in prison, he's writing to them to encourage them, to uplift them, stay in Christ. They've been founded in Christ, they know Christ, and he writes to encourage them to remain in him. He has a care for them, he loves them, and he wants them to know that he loves them for their sake and for their good. Because there, are, there is a problem that we see in these verses, deceptive, persuasive words. We live in a fallen, present evil age, and there's going to be heretics out there. There's going to be men out there who say, you know what? You don't need Christ. You need all of these other things. There are going to be men out there who might sound persuasive. It might sound plausible. It might sound like it is true, but in reality, it leads to ruin. It leads to decay, and it leads to strife in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is writing to deal with that. He's writing to encourage them, not that they've fallen into it, but there are heretics in and around Colossae that he's writing to say, watch out for them. Remain in the truth. Remain steadfast in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's important to be grounded in the gospel and the truth of Christ. And these men were not preaching Christ at all, but a works salvation. And so Paul writes in Colossians 1 verses 2 through 5, he writes to affirm his ministry to the church at Colossae in particular to encourage them and for their protection. So he's ministering to them, even though he's the apostle to the Gentiles. God has appointed him to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. He also cares for local bodies. And he writes to them to say, I do care for you. Here's how I care for you. Here's why I'm caring for you. It's to encourage and to protect them. And those are my two points this morning. The Colossians' encouragement and the Colossians' protection. 
or I guess proper grammar would be the Colossians is encouragement and the Colossians is protection. You could just say the encouragement of the Colossians. That's probably easier to say than that. But in any way, it's focusing on their encouragement and their protection. So let's first look at their encouragement in verses one through three. And notice in verse one, we see how he has conflict for the local church. And again, chapter one, verses 24 through 29 goes with chapter two, verses one through five. We've already seen him do something similar in chapter one, verse 15, all the way to chapter 23. That is, he gives something in general, and then he provides the particular application. In chapter one, verses 15 through 20, we see where reconciliation comes to where the reconciliation of the world comes, namely in Christ, through the gospel, through the proclamation of the word, through Christ dying. Then he applies that you. Colossians were once enemies, and Christ has reconciled you through the word. Well, he does a similar thing here. In chapter 1, verses 24 through 29, that his general ministry to the church at large, to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the universal church. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, how he cares for that church specifically, how he loves them, how he wants to make sure that they are protected in a time of threat. And that threat came from men who were perhaps Jewish but also had a bit of blending with Greek mysticism. That is, the way of salvation and communion with God was through some sort of experience, but also included things like uh, asceticism, not eating, not drinking, following these certain things. It was a works-based salvation. It was a special knowledge that only that they had. And so Paul, or I guess Epaphras, preached Christ to the church at Colossae. Then here comes these other men saying, Epaphras is wrong. Here's what you must do. It's not Christ. You don't need to believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. Don't eat these things. Celebrate these festivals. And you need to have this special hidden experience. And if you don't have that, that's just too bad. And so their focus was on these uh, emphases rather than Christ himself. You see, sometimes we think that once we believed in Christ, then we're done, right? That's just for beginners. That's just for people entering in. But brethren, we need Christ always, don't we? Christ is our firm foundation. Christ is our sure head. In him, we must remain steadfast because there are many alluring or uh, false doctrines out there. People might sound persuasive. And so he writes to deal with that very thing and say, you already know Christ, remain in him. And Paul is willing to suffer for this very purpose, as he says in 124, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And we highlighted there, it was Christ's sympathetic sufferings for his people. Christ suffered personally in his living and his dying, and Christ suffers sympathetically after he's been risen with his people. It's akin to what Jesus said to Paul on, at Paul's conversion, where Paul, or Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? So there is this important relationship between the head, Christ, and the body, his church, and his people. And though we suffer, we have a Christ who is sympathetic with us. And Paul certainly suffers for the sake of the church. He also engages in much conflict for the sake of the church. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you. Now, that can refer to our conflict with sin. Pastors still struggle with sin, even if it is not disqualifying. Pastors still wrestle against that very thing. All of God's people struggle against sin until the day they die. 
I think this is perhaps the, it's the same word used in 1 Timothy 6 and 2 Timothy 4. He's telling Timothy to fight the good fight and pursue righteousness. And Paul, when he's dying, says, I have fought the good fight. That is, the Christian life is one of battle. The Christian life is one of struggle. It's not one of coasting, but it's one of perpetual war between the flesh and the spirit, according to Galatians chapter 5. Now, thankfully, we go into that battle with Christ, forgiven in him. He is our head, and we have the spirit supplied to us in that battle. But it doesn't change the fact there's going to be conflict. So there's going to be conflict with our own sins. There's going to be conflict with other sins. And there's going to be conflict when it comes to doctrine. There's going to be conflict when it comes to the gospel. There's going to be people out there who say things that are just blatantly false and try to lure people in with what they have to say. That's why we have to be on guard. That's why we have to have our antennas up. And the best way to do that is to know who our Christ is. Because the ministry is very difficult. The ministry is very hard. And the application he is drawing here is how I've ministered for you. Now, we know that struggle for him because of the suffering he endures. Certainly, that is in view here. But also what the minister goes through in preparing. When it comes to mining the word of God, it is not easy. When it comes to engaging in the task of preaching, it is not something that is easy. It requires prayer. It requires God's aid, but also requires hard work, reading, studying, seeking to understand what is going on on. It requires a lot of sacrifice, sacrifice of time and energy, and it may result in the sacrifice of our life. And Lawrence Saunders and many others under that Marian persecution suffered for their life. He was burned at the stake after he was arrested. It was about a year and three months after that he was burned at the stake. He gets to that stake. He bends over. He kisses it and says, welcome eternal life. He knew what awaited, he knew what was coming, and he was willing to suffer for that very thing, because it was for the good of the church. It was for the benefit of the church. It was for the benefit of the gospel, but ministers suffer, and God's people shall suffer. So he strives for, he strives for, um, in his ministry, but notice who he strives for. I want you to know what that great conflict is that I have for you. And those in Laodicea, for the, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. But that application, I want you to know, church at Colossae. I want you to know, church at Laodicea. I want you to know those who I've never seen before. There are some people Paul had never met. And there's no, uh, and I think a Col- the church at Colossae was founded by Epaphras, not Paul. And so he's, there's many I've never seen before. I care for you, and I strive for you. He wants them to know that he cares for them. He's not boasting here when he says this. I want you to know, brethren, how much I care for you. And that's good in the face of heretics. Here's why. The heretics don't care. The heretics and the false preachers, they don't care about the church at Colossae. And there are many other types of heresies that come up in God's word or Paul and other writers deal with. They're only in it for themselves. But Paul cares for them. Epaphras cares for them, but these heretics do not care for them. Now, perhaps there is some application in our modern context to the modern celebrity preacher era. 
Now, what I mean by that is I'm not against sermon audio. I love sermon audio. I'm not against loving our favorite preachers. I'm not against those things. If you have your favorite preacher, that's great. Dale Ralph Davis is probably mine. I like Albert Martin as well. I got my guys that I like, and that's perfectly fine. But what perhaps that has done is perhaps the appreciation of the local church has dwindled. The appreciation of the local pastor has dwindled. It's almost like this celebrity is so unreachable, but the pastor who you are under every week is the one who knows your name. You're not going to call John MacArthur at night, right? Unless you're under his church. Like, I like John MacArthur, okay? I'm good with John MacArthur. But you are not going to call John MacArthur when you have a crisis, right? You're going to call me. And I'm happy to hear from you. I want to hear from you. I want to help you. But I have a more vested interest in you than others do. Now, again, I'm not against those. I want to be clear with that. I've said that three times. I'm not against modern means. We must appreciate the local church perhaps more than we do or more than we ought to. Davenant says, when a people understand what labors and conflicts their salvation demands from the pastor... Hence arises the fruit of mutual affection and kindness. For he is truly ungrateful who does not love that man in return. The man who loves him and strives with all diligence for his salvation. So Paul is saying, I love you. I care for you. But these heretics especially do not. I care for you, Laodicea. Laodicea perhaps would have been facing the same threat as well. Laodicea does come up in the seven letters to the church in uh, the churches in Revelation. They've had the spiritual lethargy, the lukewarmness, right? They had their struggles as well. And so he's writing to encourage, and I don't know that that's in view here, but he's writing to encourage them. And again, those whom he has never seen before. But he's high, I strive for you. I care for you. Epaphras doesn't say that, but that's certainly implied by uh, what we see in chapter one, verse seven. He cares for you as well. These men do not. So Paul strives for them. And notice the purpose for his striving in verses 2 and 3. And notice the overarching reason is at the beginning of verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. Sometimes heresy can be alarming and jarring, right? Sometimes heresy can be discouraging. And so in the face of threats, even though you know the truth, it's still jarring when someone comes in and threatens the church, right? When someone comes in and wants to spout off their wrong views, it's still jarring. I think it's been two years since those two guys were in our church. And, you know, I was speaking about the Trinity and they were not Trinitarian. So they got up and started speaking out against us. Thankfully, our big boys got up and they were all gone uh, in a jiffy. But the point is, is that, you know, we st- we're steadfast in the truth. We're not going to be changed, but it was still jarring and alarming. And it's a good story to tell now, isn't it? But it's still a jarring time, right? We don't want that. We don't want there to be strife. We don't want there to be conflict. But unfortunately, there is in this world. There can be discouragement. So he writes that their hearts may be encouraged. And when he refers to their heart, it's referring to their whole being, their mind, their will, and their emotions, that they would be stirred, that they would be comforted, that they would be strengthened. Remember, brethren, doctrine ought to stir our hearts, right? True doctrine ought to stir our hearts. It ought to cause us to praise. It ought to cause us to give God glory. It ought to cause us to give him the honor that is deserving unto him. Certainly, the head is the gateway to the heart. 
if we use it in the modern type of understanding. But here, heart refers to the whole person. The whole person is comforted. Now, the whole person is comforted by the word, certainly, but encouraged by what Paul says. I'm encouraging you. I'm uplifting you. I strive for you. They've already done a lot of good things. I mean, he's writing them. He said already, I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your love. I've heard of your hope. Now, press on in these things. We all need encouragement, don't we? And Paul is writing to give encouragement. I admit I'm a little bit sensitive when it comes to kitchen matters at home. And so I'm not the best. And sometimes when I'm slicing bread, things can get everywhere. And sometimes things can crumble and it's not quite the right shape. But I was slicing some banana bread the other day. And I heard this little voice from the, uh, from the dining room go, you sure are doing a good job, Dad, of cutting that banana bread. Sometimes we just need a little, you sure are doing a great job, Dad, of cutting that banana bread. I know that's a silly little thing, but sometimes in times of discouragement, not that I was discouraged that day, but it was just nice to hear. But in times of discouragement, we need to hear encouragement. We need to hear, you know, uh, uh, hey, you're doing great. You're doing fine. You're being uplifted. I mean, this ought to happen in families too, right? I mean, we ought to lift up one another. It ought to happen in the church. We ought to lift up one another. And Paul is writing to lift them up in his love for them and in the truth of Christ. And so he writes to encourage. And notice perhaps how they're encouraged. Two ways they're encouraged. Uh, it's, it's, uh, there's debate about how we take the participles there, but uh, perhaps it is either referring to the reason why they're or how they are uh, encouraged. How? By being knit together and by attaining. And so notice we're encouraged by our love for one another. Or at least we ought to be encouraged by our love for one another. We ought to be knit together. Now, the image there is that of a ligament of a body that does its part, right? Oh, that's interesting. Paul says that Christ is the head and we're the body. And so we ought to work properly as ligaments, being built together, growing together, loving one another. And the language comes again in chapter 219. He says, not holding fast to the head from whom the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. So God's people are the members, God's people are the ligaments, and we grow as the body. And how do we grow as the body? In the head, in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we love and care for one another? It is in the work of the head. How do we do our part? It's by his power. Certainly Paul highlights this in Ephesians 4 as well, uh, but I'll talk about that more in just a second. But when it comes to how we care for one another, sometimes it might just be in encouraging someone, right? Building them up, lifting them up, you know, making sure we're, uh, uh, that they're doing okay. We are knit together in these things. Hey, don't worry about those heretics. Don't worry about what they have to say, Christ. Don't worry about what those guys are doing. Christ. We need those encouragements from God's people. Again, not, it's not just that the pastor cares for you. Hopefully the members care for you too, right? And it is kind of an interesting thing when someone who is, when someone is allured by false doctrine, right? When someone who has known the love of the pastor, when someone has known the love of the brethren, yet they're still drawn in. Isn't that a perplexing thing? Isn't that a conundrum? I mean, I love Ecclesiastes for that. And well, two more sermons, by the way, in Ecclesiastes tonight. 
all about death and how eerie it is. So come and enjoy tonight. But uh, before we get there, we ought to encourage one another as we are making our way to death, by the way, to be lifted up, to be upheld, to be encouraged. And again, the people are the ones who care for you, not the charlatans, not the ones who come in. That's why it's important to build one another, one another up in the truth and in the word. I'll unpack that more in just a minute. So we are knit together in our love. He already highlights their love for the saints. We are knit together in our love for the brethren. And then also we are encouraged by the truth. I think that's the rest of verses two and three. Attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, and in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. The assurance of truth. That's important language, the assurance of truth. Again, heresy can sow discord, right? There might be a weak Christian who's like, oh, maybe they're right. They can, they can be drawn in fairly quickly. Now, I understand there are, can be things indifferent uh, amongst God's people. Adiaphora is what we call them. Certainly, one's view of the end times. We don't all have to line up and you can still be a Christian. That's fine. But when it comes to Christ and salvation, that has to be right. That has to be on board. That has to be on par. And it's salvation in him. When it comes to who Jesus is, fully God and fully man, that has to be right. That has to be on par. When it comes to the Trinity, one has to be a tri, a believe in the triune God. All those things are part, are important and vital. And especially when it comes to who Christ is. Now, there's a lot of con, uh, a large concentration of knowledge language in this book, right? Wisdom, knowledge, understanding. He prays that they would have wisdom and knowledge and understanding in verses nine through fourteen. And the reason is, again, these heretics weren't just about the Jewish, you know, uh, 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 dietary laws. They're also about that secret knowledge, which is more the Greek side of things. You have to have that secret knowledge, but it's only for a select few. It's only for PhDs in theology. And so Paul is writing and saying, no, the gospel is spread to every man, Jew or Gentile. The gospel is spread to every man. It is something that is plain. Now, God saves, God draws in. But when he says every man, he means every single person without distinction. That God saves, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what that means. And so contrary to these men, he's saying the gospel has been revealed to the ends of the earth. And yet here are these guys saying, nah, it's just this. Nah, it's just this secret thing. Nah, here's how you have communion with God. And so Paul is saying, no, it is in Christ, the attainment of the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery. Remember last time we pointed out how the mystery refers to the gospel of salvation in Christ. Christ is the mystery fulfilled, right? There was a plan of redemption that it unfolds in the Old Testament. It's concealed and then it's revealed in the new. It's revealed in Christ. He is the revelation of all the law and the prophets. In him, are, uh, in him, there is life everlasting. Mystery refers to the work of God in him, which includes the Gentiles. Not just Jews, but Gentiles, which is what Paul said in 127. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. That salvation comes by faith. It does not come by posterity. It does not come by ethnicity. It comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing upon him. It is the mystery of God's plan. And notice it's a triune plan, both of the Father and of Christ. It is the triune work of God to save sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the plan of the Father, the accomplishment of the Son, and the application of the Spirit. And we see that language in 119. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And by him, Christ, to reconcile all things to himself by Christ, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. It was the God, our triune God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the one who brings salvation for sinners. His mysterious plan that comes through the fulfillment of the one will in threefold execution. That's why high Christology is crucial, right? The one who is the image of the invisible God, the one who is the creator, the one who is the providential upholder of all things is the one in whom all the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. That is the incarnation. That is the son remains deity, even though he assumes human nature. It is the work of the triune God that the second person would take on human flesh. It is the terminus of the triune God that the son would take on human flesh. It is the work of God to do that for the salvation of sinners. We are sinful. We need one who is perfect. And the only one who is perfect is God, yet we are the ones who've sinned against God. So we needed one who is fully God and fully man. It is all according to the mystery and plan of God revealed in the work of the Son. And then notice he further describes who Christ is in verse 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, there perhaps is some allusion again back to Daniel 2. We saw some of that allusion last time. That is, there's a large concentration of knowledge language in Daniel and a large concentration of mystery language in Daniel. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar had that dream. And I don't remember the specifics of the dream. I should, but he had a dream. And God said, or Daniel says, God is the one who can reveal this. And he does. It's all about kingdoms, right? Which kingdoms would come after? which kingdoms would follow Nebuchadnezzar because he's going to die. But there is one king who's going to reign forever. There's one king who would remain forever. There's one king who lasts forever. Kingdoms rise and fall. I mean, Babylon rose, came down. Uh, Persia arose, came down. Greece arose, came down. Rome arose and came down. And every other kingdom, that shall happen to them except for one. And that is the church. The church shall always advance. The church has the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. No other institution has that. Only the church. So certainly Daniel 2 is in view. Also Proverbs 2, I think, is in view as well. What is better than silver and gold? It is wisdom. And certainly Christ is wisdom. In uh, Proverbs 2, uh, 3 through 6, he says, yes, and this is where he's talking about the value of wisdom to my son. He says, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom 
From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. That is, the greatest treasure we have is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. If wisdom is something to be sought, how much more Christ who is wisdom? And if we have that treasure, dear brethren, why is it so often we exchange it for finite things? That's part of our remaining corruption, isn't it? We sometimes still love the things of this world more than we ought to love Christ. Isn't that true? We sometimes love the things of this world that decay more than we love Christ who lasts forever. Now, thankfully, our loving of that decaying thing is forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ for those who are his. But you you sense the tension. You know that tension. You feel that tension day by day. So that's why it's good for us to be encouraged. Hey, no, press on in the faith. And I think we see how we're encouraged in these verses. The truth and the saints. I mean, it's not rocket science, right? How are we encouraged? In the truth and with the people of God. And isn't that why gathering is so important? So that we hear the truth and we're with the saints? In fact, in Hebrews 10, 25, when he says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves, even as you see the day approaching, that you might stir one another up to love and good works. Brother, I'm not against gathering during the week. I'm not against uh, having meals during the week. Those are all very good things. But especially gathering on the Lord's day to hear the word. And as we're talking, we can stir one another up to love and good works. What's interesting is similar language is found in Colossians 3. As he talks about how we function really as members. What's interesting is in Ephesians 4, he talks about how he's given gifts to the church, right? How he's given pastors and prophets and evangelists and or our uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, right? For the church, give, give gifts for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, and for the building up of the body. What's that for? Why does he give those men? So that they're not carried about to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So you come and hear someone who hopefully has been vetted, who knows at least something, still lots to grow in, but at least hopefully knows a little bit of something. And they can then tell you, hey, no, that's not right, or that's right, or this is right, or just be under the preaching. That the one who has the treasure in broken vessels, which is the language of 2 Corinthians 4, that's what a minister is. One who carries the treasure in a broken vessel. Hopefully as you see the cracks of that broken vessel, the glory of God shines forth more. But there is a blessed message that we must proclaim, and it's for the good of the church, for their protection, but also for the building up of the body. He says that in Ephesians 4. Why do you come, brethren, to praise God, certainly, to hear Christ, certainly, but for what purpose? That you might know how to live in the world and know how to care for one another. And so what, is member, what does it look like to care for one another? Well, Ephesians 4, and I think Colossians 3, outline that for us. Solid Christian homes, solid marriages, faithful workers in their jobs. That's how you can build up one another. Or in Ephesians 4, or Ephesians 4 and Colossians, don't be angry, right? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Work hard that you might care for other, be able to care for other people. Uh, build one another up, is what he says in Ephesians 4. And here's an important one. Forgive forgive and forbear that is by far the hardest of them all 
Because the reality is there's going to be times where we don't always agree with one another on indifferent things. Or someone looked at me, or someone looked at me funny on Sunday. They must be mad at me. People do that all the time. We leave church for silly reasons sometimes. And if anybody leaves a church and comes to our church for a reason like that, I will tell them to go back to the other church, deal with that first, and then come back, right? And if I haven't done that and you're hiding something, come talk to me after, and you can go deal with that. But the point is that, you know, we must be, uh, be patient with one another. The word dwells, and what's interesting is, the word dwells in us, 316, as he has explained already how we ought to live as the people of God in our Christian walk. And he says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Hearing the word is vital. Singing the word is vital as well. I know I've said this before, but when we sing, it's not just to God, right? It's to everybody else too. We're singing to God his praises, but we're reminding people that a mighty fortress is our God. Now we're not weirdos staring at each other doing that, but you know, but that's what we're, that's the image that we see here in these words, the word of Christ dwelling you richly and singing to one another. It is a blessing. It is a gift. And even too, when it comes to uh, our, 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 the studies of God and learning more about Christ, we found the treasure and the pearl, but we ought to continue to grow in understanding the jewels found in that treasure chest, right? All the times we think we've got there, I found, I've opened the box and there it is. But in the Christian walk, we always ought to ask God for grace to grow more, to examine every jewel, to examine every coin to examine everything found in that treasure, treasure chest. And it requires work, doesn't it? It requires help. It requires diligence. And I love what Davenant says. Davenant has been very encouraging to me as I've gone through this. He says, he who would have a treasure must dig in the earth. He who would have riches and knowledge of defined things must search the Holy Scriptures, carefully hear ministers, and perform all the other things ordained by God for the acquirement of these riches. What's the problem, brethren? We don't want to do that. <laughs> we have Bibles at our fingertips, and we don't listen to them as much as we should. And I'm not saying you quit your job and listen to your Bible every day, but you know what I'm saying. We don't listen to them as much as we should. We're very tired when it comes to gathering, but the gatherings are good for us. It's where we are encouraged and uplifted with the brethren and in the truth. So it's good to be encouraged in these things, but it's also good to be protected against other things. So that's our second point. Don't worry, my first point is usually the longest, by the way. So point two, hopefully, maybe it will be just as long, we'll see. But uh, verses four and five, the, the protection of the Colossians. Notice he says in verse four, now this I say, lest anyone should, be uh, should deceive you with persuasive words. Sound doctrine encourages us, but sound doctrine protects us. That's why there's high Christology as well for protection. That's why he's going to say what he will say in verses six through nine of chapter two. There is the problem of persuasive words, and the meaning is very clear. It, it sounds okay, right? It sounds legitimate. It sounds like it could be right. It sounds like it could be accurate. 
There are some doctrines out there that we just know. Nah, -uh. health, wealth, prosperity. As soon as you see that guy with the smiley teeth, you're like, no way, not going to happen. Or then he opens his mouth and you hear what he says, and you're like, definitely not. I mean, that's you know, that's very clear. It's not really on our radar. The most heretics may look nice, they may sound nice, they may speak kindly, and they sound alluring. But he's a nice guy but he's kind. He showed some care for me. God's people can be easily deceived by those things. Weak Christians can be carried about to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That's why the best advice for new converts and, new, and weak Christians is just be faithful under the preaching. Just be faithful. Just be under the preaching. Just come and learn. Just pay attention. Just be faithful. That's what we need to be under God's word. And God is pleased to meet us in his word and bring about his kingdom through his word and to strengthen his saints through his word. There are men out there who give, bring deceitful things and sound alluring in their deceitfulness. There's the faith plus crowd, right? You get in by faith, but you stay in by works. That can sound alluring, right? They have no understanding of the distinction between justification and sanctification. Justification is Christ's work for us, wherein we are pardoned for sin, and we have a righteousness not our own. We have that now. Sanctification flows out from that, but it's Christ's work in us by the power of the Spirit. Even sanctification, dear brethren, is still Christ's work in us. And the grounds for our standing before God on that final day always and forever will be Christ's work for us and Christ's work in us prepares us for that. It's always Christ. The problem is when one says their works is the way of salvation. That is in by faith, stay in by works. And if you don't do what God says, you're going to fall from your faith. That's problematic. That happens more than we'd like to think. There certainly is a place for works to your brethren, but it's an evidence of one's salvation not the means of one's salvation, right? We live in a manner consistent with the gospel. We live in a manner to please God, but we are, uh, do so walk in him steadfast in Christ and his finished work. So we need uh, his nearness. We need his steadfastness. We need his aid to understand that difference. When someone says you contribute to your standing, ooh, standing on that final day, boy, we have to be very careful with that. Or even too, some of these guys might sound alluring. Yeah, don't, don't eat this. Don't drink that. Follow this festival. They might look like the holiest people, but they're probably not. They can sound very alluring. So we must be on guard. And so we must be watchful of those things, persuasive words. Um, and notice the purpose for this writing as well, or the reason, verse 5. For though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in spirit. Uh, that is what he's saying. He's dealing with a potential objection. Paul's not here. Everything's going to be fine. Um, and so he's saying, though I'm not there, I am still with you in the spirit. I'm still with you in, uh, even though I'm chained, I'm still with you. I still have authority over you. I again, he's doing that muscle flex here, that uh, ministerial flex in a lot of ways, in a kind way. He's saying, I have been sent by God. These men have not. I have authority over you. I care for you, but I also have authority over you. And my authority is one of care for you. And so 
he does that and they are united. I think Holy Spirit could also be a meaning there, not just, you know, spirit uh, uh, based. Uh, he's with them in spirit, like, uh, but he is with them by the power of the spirit as one body in that way. Uh, so I'm with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness, steadfastness of your faith in Christ Jesus. He writes that they would be able to, uh, that he would see their, uh, see what they've done and see their steadfastness. And so notice he says, I am with you in, I am with you in spirit and I rejoice to see your good order. There must be order in the church. It's not a free for all. It's not that everybody gets to say anything or do whatever they want. There is an order in the church, and that order is centered around the truth of Christ, right? Sound doctrine helps us understand how the church ought to function as an institution. Paul himself talks about this in Titus, how sound doctrine helps us uh, when it comes to understanding our roles as members in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's outworking in our lives. And again, he's giving them encouragement. You've done the right thing. Now press on in the right thing. You've done the right thing. Now press on. I rejoice to see the good things, uh, uh, the good order that we have, I've heard of in you. So that's their good order of the church, but also their steadfastness in Christ and their faith in Christ. Now this is a military image. It's also striving as a military image in chapter two, verse one. That is, one uh, operates and follows the orders of Christ and remains steadfast in him. The minister is called a soldier in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He enlists to serve his king, but as he enlists to serve his king, he must also be steadfast as he serves his king as well. And so he's heard of their commitment. He's heard of their steadfastness, and he's saying to them, remain steadfast in that. Remain in that very thing. He's going to say that again in verse chapter uh, 2, verse 6. You're rooted and built up in him, steadfast in him. He said in chapter 1, verse 23, if you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Brethren, don't be moved away from the hope of the gospel. Don't be moved away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Remain in him. And if we remain in him, we are kept in him and by him. And our love for one another certainly will cover a multitude of sins. Davenant says, love is therefore the fruit of unanimity in faith, which so binds the minds of the godly, as it were, in covenant. When you join a church, it's almost like you're marrying that church. There is a very clear image there. That's though some light offenses may intervene. Yet as the boughs of the same tree, driven asunder by the wind, immediately come together again. There might be branches clanging against one another, but we're still rooted in the same tree. And sooner or later, those branches need to work it out. You swing this way, I'll swing the other way. They need to figure that out, right? It's not, we're leaving. No, they need to figure that out. We're not, I'm going to get chopped off and find another branch. He goes on, uh, Davenant goes on to say, they are fixed steadily in one and the same root. So something similar takes place as it regards the minds of the faithful, because they are still rooted in the same faith. Christ keeps us rooted. The word of God keeps us rooted. And the brethren keep us rooted. That's how we are protected, brethren. Remaining in the truth, remaining in the gospel, remaining steadfast. 
being under the preaching, reading our Bibles every day, and reading good theology. That helps. If you only have time to come to church and read your Bible, good. If you want to do more, then read good theology as well. And I, I think I've talked about this before, how in the past I ask people what they're reading, and I'm, it's not just because I want to hear about what you're reading, but I'm just curious to know what you're reading as well, and I'm making assessments about what you're reading. Sorry, I'm assessing you that way. Um, but the point is sometimes some people I've said, read these good things. Not that I'm the be-all and end-all, but I've, I've gone through the vetting process. You know, God's, I have lots to learn for sure, lots to grow in myself, but God has helped me when it comes to reading, and I've listened to other men as well. But the thing is, some when I say read something, some people are reading that. That's good. And those people are steadfast and rooted and strong. Some people say they're reading something. I'm like, what? I'm kind of confused by that thing. A lot of the times it's the internet, by the way. Not that I'm against the internet, but it's best to get off the internet and just read a real book that smells nice. That smells, you know, like as you open it, you can sniff it. You don't have, you know, not that, you know, that methane chemically smell from the computer, but the smell of a book, that would be something that is good. And if one is a weak Christian, you know, start with reading the Bible, start with being under the preaching, and then I'll give you some good stuff to read, right? And, you know, again, I'm not saying you have to do exactly as I say, but, you know, there is reasons for that. Read good books, read uh, good articles, read good things. Then once you grow in maturity, we can branch out further. But it ought to be in the truth and grounded in him, grounded in Christ, grounded in the gospel, grounded in good things. We must remain in the truth, and we must avoid alluring doctrine. That's pretty clear, right? And when I say that, I'm not saying you have to learn all the other doctrines. What I'm saying is just know the truth. And as you know the truth, you're going to develop what's called heresadar. That is, as soon as there's some sort of heresy that pops up, your heresadar is going to be going beep, beep, beep. You might not know exactly what it is, but you know something's not right, right? Sometimes God even gives us that before we know why he gives us that. God is pretty gracious that way. Like, that doesn't sound quite right. And maybe I've said something today. That doesn't sound quite right, Mike. Uh, hopefully not. Hopefully what I've said is right. But as we learn more, as we grow more, as we're faithful, hopefully we develop that more. Davenant says that to preach and fully teach Christ and the benefits of Christ is to stop the way against all the idle and superstitious inventions of men. For when Christ is rightly known, those beggarly elements are held in contempt. Christ has come. Christ really has dwelled. Christ really is, uh, really came to this earth and has ascended to heaven. These other men would have come in and said, it only looked like he did. Parasadar going off, beep, beep. No, Christ really was actually a man in this world. He really was born into this world. Because if he's not, then it undermines the entire gospel. When a preacher says, yeah, you can enter in by faith, but in order to contribute to your final standing, you must do these works. You must be circumcised. You must do all these things. Parasadar, beep, beep, beep. Being aware of that very thing. If a preacher says Jesus is not God, heresadar, hopefully going off. Or if a preacher says Jesus in his incarnation emptied himself of some divine attributes, you say heresadar, beep, beep. Now that one's a little more subtle, and that one can come up a lot more, even in reform circles. 
But the point is to be under the preaching, be under the teaching is the best way to avoid alluring doctrine. Steadfast, faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ. Encouraged and uplifted in the Lord Jesus Christ. For in him are all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. And if you're an unbeliever here today, there are a lot of persuasive ideas out there in the world. A lot of those persuasive ideas really tug at the deep recesses of the sins of men, mainly the disease of love of self, fame, sex, money, all those sorts of things, notoriety. Those things do not and will not last. Those things shall decay like this world, and those things shall be burnt up when this world is burnt up. But there is a treasure that lasts forever, and it is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a treasure that is eternal. It is a treasure that is everlasting, and it's only found in the truth of the gospel. Jesus lived, died, and rose again. And if you believe on him, you shall have everlasting life, you shall have eternal riches and communion with God forever. For Jesus himself says, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And you get to receive this through faith in him, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let us pray. Lord, our God, we are thankful for the steadfastness of your word and for the ways in which you keep us steadfast in the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, our God, there are so many alluring things in this world, so many alluring doctrines that sound perhaps accurate, but are very deceptive. And we pray, O oh God, that you'd help us to be on guard against those things, especially as we know your word and know your gospel and know your truth. Please forgive us, O oh God, for the times we are lured by them. Please forgive us, O oh God, for the times where we read things we probably shouldn't be reading. And we pray, O oh God, that we would be faithful in your word, be faithful under the preaching, be faithful uh, to read good things, that our minds might be uplifted, that we might set our minds upon you, set our mind upon treasures in heaven. And thank you, O oh God, that we have this treasure, though we lose everything in this world, we have this treasure found in Christ Jesus. Thank you that he is our king. Thank you that he is our Lord. Thank you that the mystery of salvation is revealed in him. And thank you that there is mercy and forgiveness in him. Thank you that there is encouragement in him. And we pray, O oh God, that we, your people, who are make up your body here at Surrey, we pray, O oh God, that we would be knit together in love and that we would have full assurance of the knowledge of the truth. We pray, O oh God, we would love one another. We pray that we would care for one another. We pray there would be no envy or malice or tearing down. We pray, O oh God, that there be building up. We pray, O oh God, there be no anger. We pray, O oh God, there be kindness. We pray, O oh God, that uh, we would be hard workers. We pray that it would be strong families, O oh God. And when we fail in these things, thank you again. There's forgiveness and mercy in the Savior. So help us, we pray, to honor you, to glorify you. Help us, we pray, to be encouraged by your word. And we pray, oh God, you help us to be protected by your word as well. If there are any here today who do not know you, please save them. Please give them new life by your word as it goes forth. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.